today we are going to begin a series exploring the character and the work of God. And over the coming weeks we're going to see his sovereignty, uh, his justice, his mercy, his holiness, his wrath, his righteousness and his kingship. But we're going to do that primarily by working through the biblical passages concerning homosexuality. And this is important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, because unless it's repealed in the uh, coming weeks for some reason, uh, the Australian government is going to be issuing uh, households with papers in the coming weeks for the plebiscite on whether or not to uphold the traditional understanding of marriage, and that being one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others for life. So it's a very current issue, and we must see what the Bible has to say regarding this. Secondly, it becomes even more important to understand what the Bible says on this matter, because as we know and as we've read most probably in the papers just this week, Uh, Secular voices opposed to the traditional understanding of marriage are given great support uh, by liberal pastors and theologians uh, who, using their their titles as uh, respectable and, and learned authorities, they provide revisionist interpretations of the clear teachings of Scripture in order to support their cause. So I want us to understand what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. I want to equip you and prepare you uh, for discussions that you may find yourselves in over the coming weeks and months. And we'll do that by showing you how uh, these scriptures are twisted uh, so that you're not taken off guard and not sideswiped by these various ways that scripture are reinterpreted. I want to do this so that you know how to respond with the truth. But moreover, I want us to understand what the Bible teaches about God, about who he is, about what he has done and what he continues to do, about how he commands us to respond to him. Because if we merely focus in on homosexuality, we we miss the wider perspective that all of these passages uh, teach us. We're left thinking that these are just the passages that teach us about homosexuality and nothing else. Uh, We miss the other sinful lifestyles that are spoken against within those passages, things that might be more directly connected to each one of us. Uh, We fail to grasp the bigger reasons as to why God commands us not to live in certain ways. We fail to see the nature and the character of God. And we lose the ability to call sinners uh, to recognise that they currently sit under the wrath of God. And yet the beautiful picture of salvation and life that they can move into if they repent of their sins and trust in the one and only Saviour, Jesus Christ. As you can see, there is a lot that we miss out on if we keep the conversation narrowed to one or two words in several passages across the whole Bible. Now, there is a lot of talk about emotions and understanding how hard it must be for people in these situations. And of course, 
Uh, we must always be compassionate to all people, to whoever we meet. Uh, and when we speak the truth, it must always be in love. And yet we must not forget that there is truth and that we are called to proclaim it. We are to submit to God for he is sovereign and his objective word guides us always. Not our subjective feelings or the subjectiveness of the culture of the day. So this is where we're going to begin this morning by looking at the sovereignty of God. That God is the ultimate authority. He is king. He owns all. He guides all. He controls all. He's the authority. And today will, in a sense, be an overview uh, of the Bible uh, to get our bearings and lay the foundation that Scripture itself lays for us. And what better place to start than at the very beginning. So, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read to the beginning of chapter 2. Genesis 1, Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, above the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Today, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God and to see that God is both sovereign in his words and in his work. That's pretty clear from the opening chapter of scripture. So God's word is sovereign. God brought creation into being through the power of his Word. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 33 where he writes this. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. It's a description about the power, the authority, the uprightness, the truthfulness of 
God's word. And the nature of God's spoken word is perfectly reflected in his written word. And that is because the written word is inspired. That is, it is God's word. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. That is, it is expired from God. It comes from him. And thus all 66 books of the Old and New Testament constitute the inspired word of God. Now it's not written by men who felt inspired, thinking they had a good idea as they contemplated under a tree the magnificence of God. No, the words are inspired because the Holy Spirit sovereignly worked through their personalities, uh, writing styles and the circumstances of these godly men to produce the perfect and flawless written word of God. Listen to these words from the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1. For no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, as the written word is God's word, it is infallible. That is, it cannot contain error. In Numbers 23 verse 19, we read that God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God's words reflect God's character and his nature. Thus, he cannot speak falsely. There are some things that God cannot do. Speaking falsely is one of them. So God's word is infallible. It cannot contain error. And as the written word is God's word, it is also inerrant, meaning it does not contain error. So it cannot contain error. It does not contain error. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 160, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Not a truth, but the truth. Yet while the Bible is God's word, we we recognize the importance of seeking to understand it. Of course, we need to interpret the scriptures, thinking through the history and the grammatical structures and the context that we find uh, throughout the pages of the scripture, looking at the different genres that we find. But precisely because God has spoken and he has not stuttered, we are to try and understand the literal meaning of every word in scripture. That is the plain meaning of each text. For while there might be lots of different points of application that stem from a particular text, we want to discern the true meaning of that passage that God has put forward. And so then we can apply the truth of that passage to different situations. But the truth always remains the same. And yet we also recognize the need for illumination. 
No matter what we think about the Bible, it is objectively God's word. It doesn't change no matter what we think about it. But we need the Holy Spirit to have brought regeneration to our hearts before we will accept and understand the scriptures as being God's word. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So, how do you know if you have the spirit? Well, let me ask, have you repented of your sins? Do you believe that Christ's work on the cross paid the penalty for your sins to appease the wrath of a righteous God? Have you confessed faith in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you now seeking to live your life in obedience to all that Christ has commanded? As Peter says in Acts chapter 2, do this and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But our understanding of the nature of the Bible has a huge bearing as to how we interpret any individual passage of Scripture, uh, let alone text that speaks specifically about homosexuality. And so, can we agree to disagree with others as to whether the Bible is God's word written through men or whether it is man's word written about God? We need to understand that these two things are not merely different uh, points of view along a spectrum. No, they are completely different models, completely different frameworks. They've got completely different interpretive parameters. You see, by stressing the Bible is merely man's word about God, then we make ourselves sovereign over the text. We get to determine what is right and wrong rather than allowing God to do that. Harks back to the garden, the start of all our troubles when the serpent asked, did God really say? If we think of it merely as man's word, well, we can go... No. However, by stressing that the Bible is God's word, we submit ourselves under the text. The Bible is the complete and sufficient revelation from God, speaking true of everything it speaks of. And thus it is the ultimate authority in all matters of faith and godly conduct. So God's word is sovereign. Well, let's now move to think about God's work, which, of course, is also sovereign. There's two aspects that we want to look at here. And the first thing we see is that his creative work is sovereign. His creative work is sovereign. How do we get that? Well... He created out of nothing. Genesis 1 verse 1 tells us, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is sovereign because he existed before there was anything, before there was even time. He's beyond time. 
He was before there was anything, and thus creation is entirely his work. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 11, verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He created out of nothing. As one writer declares, if we can believe this verse right here, Genesis 1 verse 1, then no other verse in the Bible should be a problem. For example, if God can create the whole universe, then raising people from the dead and causing a virgin to conceive would be easy beyond words. But not only do we see that God creates out of nothing, he also creates with order. Nothing is out of his control. When God had created the heavens and the earth, we read in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In ancient uh, pagan cultures, that creation was supposedly a battle Um, But the truth is nothing like that. The fact that the Spirit of God was hovering over the water shows that uh, there is, uh, in no sense, in the true account of creation, a a battle going on between good and evil. God has sovereign control over everything that happened. He dictated and it was so. And there's also structure and purpose to his creation. Each day of creation is carefully guided, one thing first and then the next, in a logical progression. The environment established before then filling it with living things. The elements of nature have structure and purpose. On day three, God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And it was so. On day four, God said in verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Everything was created according to its kind and purpose. All designed sovereignly by God. It was also created to his standard. Everything he made was good and at the end of his creative work he was able to declare everything as he looked back over it that it was all very good. Everything met his standard of goodness. A little while ago we had to replace our vacuum cleaner. The old one had no power and when we cleaned it didn't do a very good job at all. The new one however can suck the tiles right off the floor. Now, there are different standards between those two vacuum cleaners as to what constitutes a clean floor. In regards to God, we might have our standard of what is good, but it's not us who define what is good or what is not. It is the sovereign creator who sets the standard. Now, before we look at the creation of man, I just want to highlight one more very important thing. And that is that 
if we try and make the Bible more palatable to society, moving with the culture by denying what God has revealed concerning his creating everything in six 24-hour days, then we actually set ourselves up for trouble. Now, I don't have time to defend this truth at any length right now, except to say that Moses uh, wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so when he wrote in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, that the Israelites were to work for six days and rest on the seventh, because that's what God did, Moses is affirming what he himself had written in Genesis 1 through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But as I said, denying this sets up a slippery slope. It's like if it's been raining and you put one foot on the concrete and without a concerted effort and care, suddenly you've slid down the bottom of your driveway wondering, how the heck did we get here? If we try to accommodate the Bible to evolutionary views by adding in long periods of time to Genesis 1, it means that the next person can come along and say, well, you know, if there's questions about the time frame of creation, if that's not clear, well, perhaps we can then question whether it's actually an historical account at all. Maybe it's just a story that conveys a message. But then the next person can come along and say, well, if it's just a story... Perhaps we can question the relevance of the statements about men and women and whether God has actually designed them the way Scripture says he has. And at this point, we look up and realise, oh, that's how we got here. But God is sovereign in his creative work and the words which tell us how he did it. And so knowing that, let's see how he created man. First of all, he created mankind in his image and likeness. This means that man is like God and represents God. It also tells us that we did not evolve from animals, for we are separate and distinct from any other animal, as only humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. And because of this... All humans, every single person that walks this planet has incredible dignity and worth. Not one person has not been made in the image and likeness of God. And that tells us a great deal about how we are to treat each and every single person that we meet. Those whom we like and especially those whom we struggle with. Everyone has incredible dignity and worth because they are each made in the image and likeness of God. But secondly, God also created mankind as both male and female. The uh, transgender revolution, which is hot on the heels of the homosexual revolution, proposes that gender is merely a social construct uh, and that the binary labels binary being two, male and female, these are just too restrictive, uh, with one proponent advocating for omnigender, uh, a seemingly endless scale between male and female and then even beyond. But Genesis 1 makes clear that gender is designed by God and it is part of his good creation. 
Now I must mention, however, that due to the goodness of creation being marred by the introduction of, of sin that we read about from Genesis 3, there are a small proportion of people, uh, about one in 1500, uh, who are medically described as intersex because their birth gender is, is physically indeterminate. Um, but as the issue in these cases is not the same as rejecting one's clear biological sex, uh, there must be great wisdom and mercy and compassion involved in each one of those instances. Now getting back to the text, we also see now that between males and females, because each one is made in the image and likeness of God, there is an equality in being. One gender is not less than the other. Both are equal in their being and their nature. But there is difference in function. They're complementary in the way that they live and work together. They're complementary in their relationship. But this difference of function does not say anything that lessens their equality and their being. And we also see that when God created mankind, he made mankind with purpose. There is vocation and procreation, we see in Genesis 1, 26-27. They're told to rule and subdue, to be God's stewards of his creation. They're told to multiply, which is how they would fulfill the first respect. While Genesis 1 provides the big picture of creation, Genesis 2, it's not a second creation account. It, it focuses in and gives us a more detailed and intimate picture of how God created mankind and that God's design was for men and women to come together in the covenant of marriage, a union of a husband and wife, a secure bond in which children could be brought into. We also need to understand that identity, that is who people are, is not separated from the purpose that God has instilled. It seems quite clear that God would not have designed people in contradiction to his purposes for them of multiplying. Just like any other part of creation could not just decide to do its own thing, even though God had created for a specific purpose, neither can humanity. For example, in Genesis 1.16, we're told, And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. The sun can't up and decide to divorce its purpose from its identity that it had been given by the Creator. Now, some will seek to place doubt on all that we've been talking about by suggesting that there are just this many versions of marriage throughout the Bible. So we shouldn't be so rigid in our definition of what makes for biblical marriage. And they'll ask the question, well, are any of you involved in a polygamous marriage? Or are any of you in an arranged marriage? And if the answer to that is no, well then according to those people, you don't have a biblical marriage because we see all those things throughout Scripture. But there is a significant distinction between descriptive and prescriptive texts in the Bible. Descriptive texts tell us what actually happened. 
And so scripture records that King Solomon had many wives and that Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for his son Isaac. We learn that in scripture. These are descriptions of what happened. But prescriptive texts tell us what should happen. Genesis 2.24 declares, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a prescriptive text that tells us the way God has sovereignly designed things to be. And so you cannot play off descriptions that we find in the Bible with prescriptions that we are told in the Bible. Now, while we're speaking about God's creative work, I want to address the trump card that many revisionists pull out to try and show why everything that we looked at is wrong and how the scriptures are merely ancient writings that really have no relevance for us today. Here's what you see pulled out all the time and cast down to end the discussion. What is that trump card? Is that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. So stop trying to place importance on something that didn't even come up on his radar. Have you heard that? We see it all the time. Now that might sound quite confronting until you realise that there is no truth to that whatsoever. Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. Really? Have we forgotten that Jesus is a member of the Trinity? That means that he eternally existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit before creation took place. That means he was involved in the work of creation, which included the creation of life and purpose for humanity and the design of marriage. John 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. We cannot separate Jesus from his standing in the Trinity. Furthermore, it is just as important to recognise the positive affirmations Jesus makes concerning God's design. In Matthew 19, when questioned about divorce, Jesus reaffirmed the creational design and sanctity of marriage. He answered in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. In our studies over the next little while, I'm going to highlight other ways in which Jesus speaks into the issue of homosexuality. And these will be extremely important uh, for you in helping people understand Jesus' position on this matter. Because he was definitely not neutral. So God is sovereign in his creative work. But there is one more aspect of God's sovereign work that I'd like to finish on today. And that is his redemptive work, his work of salvation. Genesis 3 explains to us that Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they rebelled against God. God had placed one tree in the garden that he told them they could not eat from. And why? Well, it reminded them that he was the one with ultimate authority and sovereignty and not they. 
hate from anything else except that because I am king and I make the rules. Of course, we know their rebellious actions led to the disruption of all relationships uh, between God, between each other, between wider creation. And all humanity as a result is now born into sin and all humanity now chooses to sin. As a result, all humanity sits under the wrath and judgment of God. But while the responsibility for the fall is directly on humanity, does that mean that God is not sovereign because of it? Did you not see this coming? The Bible tells us plainly that before creation, God had set in place a plan to save the world. The Apostle Paul says to believers in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God is sovereign in his plan of salvation. The Father sent his willing Son to live a life of perfect obedience, to die on the cross as a punishment for the sins of his people, to appease God's wrath, to physically be raised again to life on the third day, to vindicate the perfectness of this sacrifice, that all who believe in Christ will be saved. And while the gospel is to be proclaimed to the whole world, God is still sovereign in his choice of who will be saved. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. God is sovereign in every aspect of his redemptive work. Now, Why do I mention this in connection to all that we've spoken of today? Because human marriage, the union of husband and wife, is a picture of God's redemptive work. It is a reflection of the gospel. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul discusses the relationship between husbands and wives, and then he says this from verses 31 to 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that the relationship between husband and wife is an echo of something bigger, something much, much bigger It is a picture of Christ's work to bring salvation to his people. Look back from verse 25. Uh, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy And without blemish, Christ sacrificed for his bride, his people. And that is what defines human marriage. It is a reflection of the gospel itself. You cannot change a reflection. You cannot look into a mirror and adjust the reflection by scribbling uh, with a texter on the mirror. Because that's not the thing that's making the reflection, that making the image. 
Nor can you redefine marriage because marriage is defined by what it reflects. Sexual union between a husband and a wife becoming one flesh is a reflection of Christ's perfect union with the church. And that is why sex between anyone other than husband and wife within the covenant of marriage is sinful. Whether that be sex before marriage, uh, Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 8 and 9. Sex outside of marriage in an adulterous affair or lusting, Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 5. Or sex between two people of the same gender, Romans 1 and other verses we'll look at in the coming weeks. All of these things fail to properly reflect the source. As you know, and I'm sure you do, that the Bible also begins and ends with marriage. It begins with human marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, but it ends with the marriage of the Lamb and His bride. Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. This last marriage is the union of Christ and his people, the culmination of God's sovereign, redemptive work. It's often said that the Bible hardly ever mentions homosexuality, and because of this, it's suggested that the writers were not really concerned about it, and so, well, neither should we. But here's the thing. The Bible is not a story about homosexuality. If it was, you'd certainly expect there to be a lot more focus on it than there is. But it's not a story about homosexuality. It is God's written revelation of himself as creator and redeemer. It is God's word to a fallen, sinful world of his sovereign plan to draw a people to himself through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is sovereign in his word and in his work. And so in all things, let us submit ourselves to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed sovereign, that you are the ultimate authority. You are in control, you guide, and you have designed all things. Thank you for your word and your work which display this incredibly. Dear Father, at this time we pray for our nation. We pray that the truth of the gospel and the the reflection of that in the sanctity of marriage would be protected, would be upheld. Pray for all those who are in position to uh, support that, that you would raise them up. Father, we also pray for those caught Uh, in the sin of homosexuality. We pray that by your spirit, you would convict their hearts and draw them to faith in your son. That they too would know forgiveness of sin and eternal life with Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for us as a church. We pray that you would help us to remember that we too are sinners. We too are sinners saved only by the grace of God. And so help us to speak the truth in love. 
Help us to be wise and gracious in our conversations. We pray that you would help us to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of salvation found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.